I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Hey, today we're joined by Keith Peterson. He's the former Idaho State historian, and we're talking about the historical highway marker program, those road signs that you see all across uh, roadways in Idaho. Peter, I bet you've seen your fair share of those brown signs. Of course. And, you know, I do have to admit, I don't stop all the time. I usually stop when the historical marker is at a really lovely, awe-inspiring view. Then I'll stop. But, you know, I, today's conversation, I think we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty of signs. And hopefully by the time we're done, we're going to have all our listeners not ignore them, but stop. Well, that's 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 very true. Now, uh, we'll, we'll dig into that soon. And you've got nature news. But I, I want to acknowledge this is episode one of season six of the show. Peter, uh, did you think we'd be making it to season six? No. You know, we're six years old. We're, we're starting <laughs> kindergarten. Uh, Leaf, we're doing pretty good. You thought we'd be canceled after our third yeah, episode. I didn't, sure. I didn't even know if we'd get to preschool. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to do this with you, Peter. And uh, let's kick in the new year with some nature news. Awesome. So, Leaf, we're going to talk about auroras. Well, not quite auroras, but something similar to aurora. And auroras are around our polar regions and are produced when solar winds energizes particles in the Earth's atmosphere at high altitudes, you know, a thousand kilometers or so above. And, you know, these guys get, these particles get excited and they glow in greens, reds, and blues. And I imagine you've seen your share of auroras. I have, especially when I was younger, living in northern Canada, we saw a lot of them. Yeah. But yeah. They're they, pretty, they are pretty special. Yeah. Awe-inspiring, right? But near the equator, there is another type of light display. Oh, really? It's called Steve. Steve. Steve, yeah. <laughs> Strong thermal emission velocity enhancement. Okay. And Steve is a mauve pink display, which is on occasion accompanied by a green striped picket fence. What? So they, they call this light display Steve and the green picket fence. Okay, and, you got to explain more about that. Right. right. And what Steve is is still a bit of a mystery. Um, Scientists have previously thought that Steve might be related to auroras, but with auroras, those particles kind of rain down, and so sure. that's where you get that really cool coloration. Steve doesn't do this. Uh, the picket fence does, but Steve himself won't. <laughs> and we've got some researchers out at UC Berkeley who, by looking at the picket fence, have proposed that Steve and his picket fence are produced by electric fields parallel to the magnetic fields at much lower latitudes. So so they're parallel to the magnetic fields. And why they think so is because the green picket fence is too green and it doesn't have any blues and reds and blues are caused by ionized nitrogen. So that's why they think it's at a lower level. And that because it's so green, there's this very specific energy range of electrons creating these colors by an electric field. Which is completely different from the auroras. Interesting. Right. And they're pretty sure Steve himself is produced by a similar process. You know, so the picket fence is an offshoot of what's causing Steve as well. To really narrow it down and get 
to the you know the official is it created by an electric field they're going to have to shoot a rocket into that's Steve a, or his picket fence. That sounds so. like the answer to all problems. Yeah, let's shoot yeah, a rocket. Let's shoot a rocket into it. Yeah, totally. So I'm curious, it, like, okay, I've seen the Aurora Borealis. Mm-hmm. I think people, if you even haven't seen it yourself, you kind of know that you've got the shimmering lights on the horizon usually, right. sometimes overhead. I'm wondering if this picket fence, is it on the horizon? Is it overhead? So I've just seen some some photos of it. Of course, when I, I saw this, I had to Google Steve and, the right. picket fence, and his picket fence. So it really is, there is a mauve pink stripe that yeah. goes across the sky. It's, it's a line. Yeah. And then right below it, when the picket fence does show up, there are green stripes that are perpendicular to so Steve. Cool. Well, I think we've given our listeners something to go Google. Google Steve, what is equatorial. Yeah. Uh, Strong thermal emission velocity enhancement. Very cool. Just do Steve and this picket fence. Or take a trip down to the equator. Lots right. of cool places on the equator to go visit. I think so. <laughs> right on. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about the historical highway marker uh, program that's here in Idaho. Our question for trivia is, when did it start in Idaho? How long ago was that? When we come back, we're going to talk all about the markers and changes that are coming on our roads across the state. Keith Peterson will join us. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that... You want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. (laughs) Let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to welcome our guest today, Keith Peterson. He's the former Idaho State Historian for Idaho. He is still busy, so we can't say he's retired. No. Uh, he is also a two-time visitor to our show. I want to welcome him back, and thank you for joining us on The Nature of Idaho. Oh, thanks. It's great to be back. I, I just wish my main name was Steve. It'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could change that, right? Yeah. Uh, last time you uh, spoke about your book, about how the shape of Idaho came to be, how the borders were made in our state, this time... We want to talk to you about all those brown signs. I guess they're all brown-colored signs that are on the side of various roads in our state that are the historic highway markers. Uh, What do we know about that program, and why does it even exist? Well, the program goes goes back a long ways, and these markers, there's more than 300 of them around the state. And, you know, I don't know exactly how it started, but most of the markers were done in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. And then there was a bit of a rush for a few more markers around the uh, 
Idaho Centennial in 1990, but not too much since then. There's been a few put up, but mostly it, it goes back to those early days of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Well, th- this could have been a trivia question. Uh, what is marker number one? Well, I can't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been working on this project for two years. It, that's that's one of the really strange things about the markers is that you can have sometimes you'll see two of these together, and one might be number one twenty seven, the other might be three fifty five. Oh. The, the numbers have nothing to do with geography or with the chronological order they were put in. What? Yeah, it makes no sense. We really don't know how that numbering system came about. Huh. So um, I don't know what the first what the first marker was. That's a good question. And I was curious, but I can't. I don't think we can determine that now. I'm just thinking. So we've got this marker that we want to put here. What number should we give it? Seventy three. <laughs> okay, why not seventy three? Right. In fact, we kind of had to develop a, a master list. There were a couple of master lists, and. Uh, you know, we thought we had them, but but now one of my projects is to develop a master list of, of all of them. And, you know, some are missing, and uh, sometimes we know why they're missing. Sometimes we didn't know until this project that they were missing. So, yeah, it's kind of a, it is kind of interesting, but the, the new system will have a, a numbering system that will relate to the, basically the six regions of Idaho. So, Region number one will start with a one and, and two with a two and so on. So you mentioned that some of the signs were missing, and I would assume that other signs were in disrepair. Prior to the project, who kind of oversees these historical markers? Well, it's, it's a collaborative project. That, uh, and this, this collaboration goes back to the, to the beginning uh, in, the, in, the, in the 50s between the Idaho Transportation Department and the Idaho State Historical Society. It's actually in, in state statute. So in, in, a, in a nutshell, uh, the State Historical Society writes the words and the Idaho Transportation Department um, fabricates the signs and puts the signs in. They have to be in places where it's safe for um, vehicles to enter and exit, including RVs. So a marker can't just go any place. And with precious few exceptions, they're either on state or U.S. highways rather than county roads or forest service roads or things like that. So the the maintenance of them uh, really is, you know, people will call up and say, hey, you know, someone ran into marker 345 in uh, Rexburg or whatever. And, you know, and then ITD will go out and, and re- repair that. That's the way it's, it's always been uh, done in the past. Right. Ed- I, I can imagine these are, like you said, they're on a variety of roads. They cover this. I assume they cover the entire state. Uh, you know, there's large parts of the state that don't have a lot of roads. So maybe the central part is kind of empty. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Now, unless there's a road, there's no marker. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they are well distributed. Actually, it's, it's kind of interesting as I have been uh, developing this master list that the the distribution is, is really pretty even between the six districts. So when you look at a historical marker, what is on it? Is Are we just looking at historical markers for our human activity? Or as, as Leaf, who is a geologist, are we looking at historical markers for geology development, volcanoes, etc., within Idaho, the history of, say, the Snake River? You know, what kinds of information is on a sign? 
Well, there's a little of both. And as near as I can tell, um, this he started off um, basically as human history. But over time, they there have been a, a lot of uh, geological markers. Down your way, for example, there's... Um, uh, I shouldn't give a number, but there's three or four markers about the, the Bonneville flood. Up this way, there's another probably half dozen markers about the, uh, you know, the Lake Missoula Ice Age floods. So there's that there's that kind of um, that kind of um, geology. And then, you know, landscape basically shapes human history. So, you know, um, if you have, you know, there's there's markers that talk about both a river as a river, but then what, you know, what happened at this particular place on the river in, in human history. So, so they, there's a, there's a good number. I, I, w- I think I counted up one time. I don't have it off the top of my head, but I think there's about 20 to 30 markers. They're just, you know, what I would just call straight geology. And, and we appreciate that. Idahoans need to know why that rock is black and, and how awesome it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the absolutely well, so in your inventorying of the existing markers, you know, are there some patterns that emerge about how, in in some ways, this is how Idahoans tell the world about themselves? I guess is is a way to think of our marker system. Are there are there pearls of wisdom that come from that? Well, there's pearls of wisdom. There's also some kind of you know the, the interesting thing about this this program is that. What we're trying to do with the what will soon be 400 or so markers is to, you know, kind of have a variety of stories. But on the other hand, most people approach these one at a time. So we'll say, for example, there are, for example, if you say you were from Mars and you came to Idaho and the only thing you learned about were going through the highway markers, one of the things you'd learned is that people went through Idaho just as fast as they could to get someplace else because 44 <laughs> markers deal with Lewis and Clark and the Oregon Trail. You know, you would find precious little information. Nothing seemed to have happened after World War II. And in fact, 85% of the markers deal with 19th century history or geology. There weren't any women in Idaho. There were no blacks or Hispanics. So, you know, you kind of get the picture that... Um, is kind of an old school style of history. And one of the, you know, what we're trying to do is, is to bring markers up to date, uh, both the markers that are there, because if a marker went up, you know, we'll say half a century ago, there's been so many people working on Idaho history or geology. We're finding a lot of the geology markers are, as I run them by the folks at the geological survey, that there's really outdated information. We just, know a lot more so we can tell more about that story but then there's just so many parts of idaho history virtually anything in the last hundred years is ignored on these markers so there's just so much more that we can tell we get a lot of comments from people traveling through you know how important these are and and really they're geared more towards visitors you know we can when we live in a place we drive by these things and we never look at them but tourists coming into the area that's that's the real market for these and and they're significant to them and you know you see you see cars stopped at these turnouts where there are markers so it is a way for idaho to present itself you know to the traveling public but i also want to challenge our idahoans to stop too because how well do we know idaho's history 
And, and so it's a great opportunity for even us to learn a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. And, and one of the things we're trying to do in changing some, some subjects and adding new subjects is to just try to, you know, entice people with, um, get a, a little bit of excitement about, I want to learn more. And there will be uh, QR codes on the new marker. So if someone reads something about, you know, the nuclear reactors and all we have is a hundred words on the sign, you can run your phone across there and, and come up with a, a whole new history, a much greater history of why INL is there and, and photos and videos and so on. So, yeah, it's, it's going to, I think, be uh, really much more robust than it has been in the past. So I'm, I'm looking, I, I pulled up on the screen the, the Idaho State University marker, and it mm-hmm. talks about uh, the origin of, it actually is one of the, the few things <laughs> that's described from the 1900s. And uh, and so the look of the sign, I'm I'm looking at it, and it's you know it's got uh, some classic looking font to it. It's got the little number two eighty nine, which I always thought was significant. <laughs> the, the, the specific number that happened to be there. It's got a map of Idaho on it. Uh, so there's this format that uh, a lot of the, I don't know if they all adhere to the exact same format, but they do have this look uh, that yeah. is a little old school. But I kind of I don't know. I, I, this is sort of a warm feeling that I get when I see them. They're very distinct and their own. So can you speak a little bit to uh, how how these new signs would look? Will they be a complete, are they going to be in some futuristic font? What are you going to do? No, in fact, I don't think most people will even notice. They're going to, we learned early on this project that uh, when we talked to folks, don't mess with that typeface. <laughs> that, and that, typeface was developed and it's only used one place in the world and that's on these markers You're it was kidding. developed specifically for these signs so uh so it, it, you know the the signs themselves will be metal but and we do have because in the old days they literally had to you know carve out of wood all of those letters so you had a much less space we're able to tell a little bit most of the average length and when you're writing these, believe me, 25 words means a lot. Right, right. <laughs> the average length of the other ones, about 75 words, we'll be able to get about 100. And there, there is a bluebird on each of the markers now, but other than that, they're going to look just as they did. And all the markers all look the same throughout the state. That's great. So it's very much was wanting to keep that, um, because people know those as the Idaho markers, both Idahoans and people traveling through. So we didn't want to mess with that. And in fact, many of the signed posts, if they're still in good shape, those posts aren't moving. It's just the, the new sign will be inserted into them. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then with the with the little addition of QR codes and that sort of technology to maybe learn more about the story than the 100 words allows you to tell. Right, right. That's fantastic. So you mentioned there are roughly 300 existing markers around. And there's the possibility of adding new ones across the state. That that seems like maybe a, a challenging thing to do. Are, is there a plan to remove old markers and sub out, you know, older? Uh, maybe you have enough storylines about the Bonneville flood, for example, and you really want to maybe substitute a, a new story. How how are those choices made? What stories we are going to tell going forward? Yeah, well, it's uh, uh, I think it's a process. <laughs> it's work, right? You know, when when this started, I I think 
It started, kind of, and I'll go back a little bit. It started basically in two ways. From the State Historical Society, the agency was getting comments from people about um, this is old style uh, history and sort of what I said. Didn't anything happen in Idaho after 1900? And some of it, quite frankly, just offensive. From the ITD perspective, it was we've got a lot of markers that are in bad shape. And in fact, some aren't even standing anymore. And we need to do something about it because people are complaining to us about it. When ITD first started, the concept was basically just to do metal signs and and replace, you know, just redo the old signs. But the since all the signs are going to be refabricated, it just provided so many more opportunities to do the job in a much more thorough way. To get to your question, it's kind of a, you know, it's a joint project between two agencies and there's many people involved and I'm just the hired pen. I'm I make a suggestion to people, you know, and and why I think we could change a subject or add a sign side by side and go ahead and tell the story of the Bonneville flood, but maybe there was another something interesting happened at that site. I'll give an example, and because I started, the process was to start in the north. One of the things that happened, and give a, a couple examples, one of the things that happened after these markers went in, for, for many years, they were the only show in town. So if you, if there's turnoff on uh, Lake Ponderé, and the, our marker talks about the, the Missoula flood, it's just a geology marker. A couple of things. First of all, since that sign went up, there's so much more interpretation has gone up. Right at that marker, for example, the National Park Service has put up three beautiful interpretive signs that give much more detail than we can in our markers about the Ice Age floods. So that's an opportunity for us. Let's just say, let's just change the subject there. I mean, we can't tell the story with no pictures or anything like that on a, on a big sign that they can tell on in, their in interpretive signs. So that's the kind of place where we're looking at changing out the signs. And then there's other places where we're saying, let's do side-by-side signs. Or, and there's other places where we're saying, as long as there's a turnout, where we're saying, you know, there's other stories we can tell in other locations. One of the things about down in your part of the world, so many of the markers are Oregon Trail markers. I mean, just really a lot of them. But, you know, they're kind of, um, hey, if you look out here, you can see the ruts, which is pretty exciting. But if you want to tell another story side by side, there's not much else you can tell there. So, you know, we need to look for other locations for markers as well. Some some of these are pretty tough. The markers are out on the road. What you look out on sagebrush, there's not a whole lot of stories you can often tell at those places. Right. And you'd mentioned before that the distribution of these was pretty decent coverage throughout the state. So maybe that's not as a big of a driver, but there might be new categories of story to be told around the state. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I say, anything about women, anything the groups, anything basically in the last hundred years, all those are fair game. And one of the things about these markers is that, you know, since they're on state and, and federal highways, and since they have to have safe turnouts, at least the marker you were looking at in, uh, in Idaho Falls, sorry, Pocatello you were looking at, is kind of unusual on uh, that we don't have very many markers in urban areas. So for example, you know, Boise, pretty important. Some people think, most of us in North Idaho, not so much, but <laughs> but uh, there's no markers in Boise. Really? So one of the, we're trying, yeah. So one of the, in, in fact, precious few towns, I, I mentioned Idaho Falls, there's a couple inside the city limits. There's the Pocatello one, there's a couple markers in Twin Falls. 
but the vast majority of these markers are out on roadways. So where are there good places in urban areas where it's safe and people will actually pull out? You know, usually that's like a city park or something that happens to be on a state highway. You kind of get the idea that it's complicated to work all this, but but urban stories, I mean, the story of Idaho in the last hundred years, is basically a story of urban growth. And we don't really have a place to tell that, very many places at least, to tell that story. You know, and, I, and I'm thinking about the urban science as well. If we're looking at our local Idahoans, what a perfect way to kind of jumpstart their curiosity in these historical markers. Yeah. If we do have a sign there in a park at Boise, and they're going to go, huh, I didn't know that. And then maybe... They start searching out other signs. Yeah, that's that's the whole you know the whole purpose of these signs is to get people interested in either learning more about that subject or you know there's people who do wayfinding on these things and it's, it's their purpose to find all 300 of them you know so yeah that's that's our goal is to get people excited about it and then hopefully you know in the old days I'm not sure print is the way and this is a, a decision way above my pay scale but. ITD and the State Historical Society jointly produced a, a booklet about all the markers. And Peter, you were talking about, you know, you drive by and you didn't see it. Well, I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> but what I always had in my car when I travel around is the highway marker guide. So if I stop five miles up the road, I can go back and say, what was that marker about? So probably there'll be something like that. It will no doubt be online so that people can say, hey, what else is out there and be able to get kind of the whole kit and caboodle of all the markers in one place. I do have to ask, we did an episode on this. Is there a historical sign or will there be a historical sign about the great beaver drop? I love that story. <laughs> uh, Geronimo, yeah, it's a great story. It's possible, you know, we have 27 markers devoted to white fur trappers. It's possible that maybe we could talk about what happened to the beaver, and that might be an opportunity. But that's been on the back of my mind because it is, it is a great story. A lot of trappers, huh? Jeez. Yeah, and, you know, and, and, and sort of what happens with these things, and, you know, it's, again, it's the nature of the historical writing of, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, is it, you know, so-and-so came in and they trapped a bunch of beaver and, and then they left. But there's nothing about what was the landscape like before when there were beaver in the landscape? What's it like now? What were the consequences of that? And, you know, there's there's nothing, no environmental issues attached to these. And that, to me, when you get some early accounts of where beaver were before they were trapped and what the landscape looked like is just fascinating to me. So, again, there's so, so many stories you can tell. Then the Geronimo story, the airlifting beaver, is kind of a different problem in that beaver came back, but folks in urban areas didn't like them so much, so they, you know, move them out. But that whole issue is just sort of like we, the beaver in Idaho are a very brief period of time, 20 years, guys, all guys came in, trapped them, and then they left, and we don't know anything else about beaver. And, you know, the, this is a long history. So uh, one last question before we get to our trivia. 100 words is not a lot of space to tell a story. How do you do it? It's hard. <laughs> I, you know, I have some experience because I, and when I was working, I did a lot of texts for like the State Museum and, and other museum exhibits. So actually in the museum world, this is a fair number of words. Usually we try to keep our text panels in a museum to about 60 words. 
But I usually start off with, you know, a thousand or more and I black away and I generally can't get down to a hundred until after a couple of months of coming back to it, maybe once a week. And then I have my wife read it and see if that makes any sense. And, and all these things are reviewed, all the markers, you two guys will be on when I get down there. Everyone is reviewed by someone with technical expertise in the field. And then, um, you know, we just, we just have a, a variety of people both inside and outside the agency to read it and say, do these make sense to you? But I guess it, you get kind of a craft, you know, I, when I first started this, I, you know, you can't tell history in a hundred words, but you kind of, you can, it's just, it takes, you have to be patient. That's great. Well, so tell us, uh, our, our trivia question was, uh, when were the first uh, highway markers set up here in Idaho? Well, I might've given it away. <laughs> they were in the 1950s and Idaho was really, um, way ahead of the curve in these state highway markers. I'm not going to say it was the first state to have a program, but it might have been. And if not, it certainly was one of the very earliest. And many of the marker programs in other states, Montana and Washington, but I'm talking about states uh, far away, not just neighboring states, have, have mimicked the Idaho model. Which is great. And we really want to thank you, Keith, for joining us. And for those who are interested about the historical marker project. And if you want to download a PDF of the markers, just go to history.idaho.gov and you've got it right there in your smartphone pocket. Thanks, Keith. Shows are produced at KISU Studios in Pocatello at Idaho State University with editing and production by Ben Graham. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org or from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noid-kisu at isu.edu.